Good afternoon. Uh, thanks for coming to Reimagining the Historic House Museum. My name is Ken Torino. I'm manager of community engagement and exhibitions at Historic New England. And uh, I'm very pleased to bring you this session today. Uh, you'll, I've got a very, very brief introduction, I promise. Um, and I'm going to be talking actually about um, a new publication that uh, ASLH and Rowan and Littlefield will be publishing uh, in 2019. Um, I've got just a really brief introduction uh, to the session and what reimagining the Historic House Museum is all about. Then I'm going to introduce um, our speakers um, and uh, give you their uh, their biography in just a minute or so. So, um, successful house museums have a willingness to honestly assess their strengths and weakness and to question assumptions and traditions. Um, and there's a willingness, there has to be, a willingness to evolve and change. The challenge for historic houses is that they are all different. Uh, one size doesn't fit all. Each site has unique content a unique neighborhood, a unique story, uh, unique collections, and unique skills. But there are commonalities. Shifting demographics, constant introduction of new technologies, increasing expectation by donors and visitors, as well as issues we're dealing with, declining support and attendance. And that's forced many museums to rethink their mission, vision, and values to survive. Now, some organizations have successfully navigated these challenges to become more sustainable and thrive, being open to changes in mission, management, interpretation, collections, audiences, and programming uh, will introduce a whole new set of exhilarating, challenging, and sometimes discomforting approaches that will require us to examine our organizations uh, and ourselves in new ways. Now this session, as I mentioned, is based on an upcoming ASLH Ronan Littlefield publication, Reimagining the Historic House Museums, um, New Approaches and Proven Solutions. Uh, the that is edited by me <laughs> and Max von Bogowy, who is over there in the back. Hi, Max. I think a lot of you know Max. Um, and our presenters today will offer a variety of new approaches to engage audiences, expand impact, and manage real-world issues, specifically in terms of earned income and sustainability, audience, and in the context of house museums through community, and also talking about landscape. So I'm very pleased uh, to have three of the authors of the book with us. And I will just briefly give you a little introduction background on them in the um, little background on them. So uh, first off, Lucinda Brockaway is here in the middle. Uh, and she is the program director for cultural resources at the Trustees, a 125-year-old Massachusetts preservation and conservation organization that protect, pr protects more than 26,000 acres of cultural, natural, and scenic landscape. And she leads a team of cultural resource specialists seeking innovative solutions for historic sites. Uh, prior to joining the trustee, she ran her own landscape preservation consulting firm for 25 years. And one thing she has in common with one of our other presenters, she also worked at Strawberry Bank at one point, too. Catherine Kane. And she consulted at the Stowe Center. And at the Stowe Center. Cindy gets around. <laughs> Catherine Kane, next to her, is the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center Executive Director Emerita. Under Kane's leadership, 
the center in Hartford, Connecticut, transform into a public-oriented museum with a diverse audience. Consisting of three historic buildings and extensive collections, the museum is a program center and tourist attractive attraction, excuse me. Innovative programs include award-winning salons at Stowe, bringing the public into the parlor for conversations around contemporary issues. Uh, Catherine, I think, is known to many of you as the chair of the American Association for State and Local History for another day? Yep. Another day, okay. And uh, serves on the Connecticut Historic Preservation Council. And last but not least is La uh, Larry Yurden, who is president of Strawberry Bank, uh, museum in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, a living history museum telling the 300-year-old history of Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Uh, Larry earned undergraduate and graduate degrees in history and an MBA from Rensselaer Polytech Institute. He has served as president of the New England Museum Association and on the Council of the American Association for State and Local History. And I'm very happy to say that Larry has just been awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award from the New England Museum Association. So congratulations to Larry on that. Well, well deserved. Okay, I just have a couple of slides before we turn it over to Larry, maybe. So the genesis for our Maxim, my book, came about through these workshops we do, Reinventing the Historic House Museum. And we've been doing these over the country the last, I think, three or so years. And they're one-day workshops, which include an analysis of the most important opportunities and threats facing historic sites in America. And it's based on uh, social and economic research. research. Now, we share a series of field-tested tools and techniques drawn from such wide-ranging sources as nonprofit management, business strategies, and software development. Um, we've been, this has actually took place here in Kansas City about a year or so ago, Max, if I remember. And a key component of the workshop is a facilitated brainstorming session uh, to reinvent an event or program. And we work with actual house museums on this, and it puts the theory into practice and also demonstrates the value of multiple, multiple perspectives for analysis. And as part of the workshop, one of the things that we do is we ask the participants, what, are, what is the biggest challenge facing your historic house museum or historic site today? And you can see, I put in red, what some of the most pressing issues are. And we've been asking the same question and workshops all over the country. And there's much similarity between them. Obviously, funding, board, support, attendance, uh, interpreting sensitive topics, uh, making things more relevant, uh, telling a full story, consistency in interpretation, and always something about docents and volunteers. I compiled, always, um, I compiled these from the, the many that we have taken just to show you some of the most pressing issues. And in our book, New Approaches and Proven Solutions, we've tried to address that and we've uh, divided our uh, chapters into four, five sections, excuse me, and you can see wh what they're dealing with, some of those very pressing issues that people have told us. That's how we form this book. And I think uh, you can see the sections, and I've got representatives, our speakers, from three of those sections. Um, 
who I will put on in just a minute. Uh, what I did want to say is I think we have at least one other author here in the room. Yeah, raise your hand. Mary on Bulgoi. There's Mary. Okay. Uh, and she's talking about women's history in her chapter. So for uh, this afternoon, uh, Larry Yurden from the Fundamental Challenge, uh, front cha excuse me, chapter, will present strategies, approaches, and solutions on how historic house museums can become sustainable by being entrepreneurial. He will discuss what is possible when the professional and vol volunteer leadership of an historic house museum looks beyond traditional approaches to creating income. Next will be Cindy Brockaway, who will talk from the chapter Different Approaches. We'll discuss a model for uh, reinventing house museums. And it's, I'll let her tell you about it, but it, it's, I find it really fascinating. And it's taken from the National Trust in England. So I'll let her go into detail for that. But it's a really interesting um, model and way of looking at things. And then Catherine Kane from the audience section will examine why audiences matter to historic museums. And she'll outline um, uh, some of these and seven, several ways museums can listen to their public, asking them what they want and why. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Larry Yurden, who will kick us off. I want to commend all of you <clears throat> for finding this room. <laughs> that, that proves that you're smart. I went and used the men's room a minute ago, and I had to walk down two hallways to get to the room. It was just kind of a labyrinth. So whoever designed the building apparently enjoyed that kind of mystery, getting people around. So you can't read that, but I think probably in the back. So let me give you a dramatic reading. At, at a historic house museum somewhere in America, midday, midweek in the executive director's office, the contractor's written estimate for painting the house exterior is 30% over the one made in conversation with him earlier in the week, and there isn't enough cash to cover the verbal estimate, much less the new written one. Today's mail included a letter from the principal of the local school requesting the historic house participation in new educational program. Yes should be the right answer, but there isn't a staff member who has time for added assignment. The auditor's bill arrived and the money set aside to pay her was spent on the water damage caused by leaking pipe in the carriage house last winter. The county manager's new budget has a lime item for the historic house, but it's 25% less than last year's budget and 50% lower than the previous year. And so it goes, the financial challenges of running historic houses or historic sites in this time of restricted resources. Does that sound familiar to anybody here? <laughs> it seems to be my whole life. Um, so most of us derive our operating income from pretty standard things, membership, fees for programs, admissions, contributions to the annual fund, campaigns, and if we have an endowment, endowment uh, withdrawals. Um, it's been clear in recent years, particularly after the uh, recession of 2008, that these familiar income sources are really not always dependable and not really sus uh, sustainable in many cases and don't really help us uh, to fulfill our whole responsibilities. So it's a challenge, our challenge is to add new revenues to these traditional sources. And I mean add and not replace. We need to hold on to the ones we've already got. <clears throat> so new resources uh, 
for, are the foundation for long-term financial sustainability, and they must be diverse. If you've all gone to your investment advisor or read about your, how to take care of your retirement plan, they're always talking about diversifying your uh, in, uh, investments, so you must also diversify your sources of income. So let's take a look at how we might do that. First of all, we have to get move our institutions, and I, I know this will be difficult for everybody in this room to admit to this, but we are by nature traditionalists, rather conservative in our management. If we're not, our, certainly our, the trustees, the people we work for are, so it's difficult to move from that very traditional, very conservative way of managing. We've always done it this way. You know that. Uh, you've heard that somewhere. Before. A couple of people are nodding their heads. Yes, I've heard that before. So the biggest challenge will be going to your board, not only changing your way of looking at uh, the world and what we can do, but also changing that of your board. I'm going to leave that up to you, how you're going to do that. I'm going to talk to you. Um, there's plenty in the literature, by the way, about change. And um, we'll leave that up to you. I'm gonna, what do we do here? That one, okay. So let's talk about some strategies, and I'm gonna ask you to help participate in this. Some strategies that we can use to expand our sources of income, diversify those sources of income. So it's always good to adapt a successful program that you have or that somebody else has uh, yeah, for their programs get new audiences along the way. Anybody have any program that they've duplicated at their place, they've changed? I might say that at Strawberry Bank we, had a we have a wildly successful wine tasting. Uh, it has about 900 to 1,000 people that show up, uh, which is a large group of people for us to handle. And uh, it attracts a certain group of people. I know you probably, if I asked you, you probably could describe them. They're 40, 50, 60, maybe 70 in that age, older age group, and um, they enjoy their glass of wine and, uh, and the hors d'oeuvres spread around the property. We said to ourselves, this is successful, maybe we ought to try it with a different group. So we tried it with the 20, 30-year-olds, but what did we serve instead? Beer. Beer. <laughs> I do say if we could give a bottle of beer at it for every ticket we sold, that we could double our admission generally. So that's proved to be even more popular, and we have usually an audience of 1,100. Anybody have a similar experience that you've taken a program like that? Nobody has. All right. We're thinking next. Uh, uh, we're thinking next probably of going and um, taking and adapting a program to maybe herbal teas, that kind of thing, for a completely different audience. There. There is marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> That's not helpful. <laughs> In my state of New Hampshire, it's not helpful. It sounds like it's helpful, but it's not. Um, understand donor motivation and design giving opportunities that, that expand, uh, that respond to the donor's needs and interests. Uh, our own particular experience, I went to uh, a wealthy couple who are well known for supporting or cultural organizations in the city. And after I did my little pitch, they said, we're really not interested in old houses, which just warms my heart, you know? I'm sure you all feel the same way. Uh, but it took a little while to figure out that, in fact, they were interested in 
American history. So next presentation, we talked about our program called Becoming American. Um, it's our school program. It's also an adult program that we've duplicated as well and working with other organizations in town. So once we talked about this program that reflected their particular interests, we got a check for tuition, buses, lunches, and all kinds of pre and post materials on that. So it's important to really listen to your donors and see what they're doing. The, of course, we all know the problem is if you start designing programs specifically for the donor, then you're going to be really stuck because at some point that dollar disappears and you've got a program that you've got to find funding. So, so that's a very delicate uh, uh, area to work with. Okay, the strategy, introduce a fee structure for current non-fee programs, adapt successful programs from other compatible orga comparable organizations. Um, that's one that I look out and I see a whole sea of 75 people who probably are all very tender-hearted and not very stingy people. And when the local DAR comes to you and says, we really need a place to move, meet, you say, sure, go right ahead. We'll open the building up for you, right? But we don't just say, sure, and it'll cost you a user's fee. And we need to do that for all the kinds of ways our operations get used, to think about how we can add a fee onto that that, in fact, reflects the cost to us as well as uh, returning the value on, on the particular piece of property. Um, so I think that's uh, something that so all of us can take a look at over time. Let's see here. Pursue partnerships with profit-making businesses to complement and augment new fundraising efforts. Uh, that's not always obvious to work with uh, local businesses, but it's important uh, on that. And so what we've done uh, locally is um, I will mention one specific program. And of course, I've got my notes mixed up with it. I'm way ahead here. Excuse me for one second. I'll reorganize that. One of the issues that we de dealt with with this particular program is to take one of our businesses and uh, runs a restaurant called Fizzy Wigs, an interesting title, talk to them about joining with us to run our tavern. We run the tavern as a historic site, um, at one of the historic houses, and give the standard tours and activities and use it for school programs, but we don't actually use it as a tavern. So we talked to them about using it as a tavern at special events, and it's proved to be very popular and, again, another additional source of income for us as well. Okay, contract people from outside with skills to manage new or altered businesses. We're all very capable museum people. We're not capable of running restaurants, I've found myself personally. Uh, my previous position, we were running a restaurant and we really weren't doing a very good job of running the restaurant. For some reason, it lost large amounts of money. I did finally figure out that the staff were feeding their family and anybody that walked through the back of the kitchen uh, dinner every night. So I, we kind of figured out there was a problem there. But there were bigger problems in terms of management. So it's always good to bring in somebody from the outside to run your operation. Uh, and also, in, we talked early in another session about museum stores. 
the comment in that was the larger museum stores have brought in companies to run those, and uh, they've been successful and not successful. They've had very uh, experience there. One insti large institution I know managed to increase their net by $100,000 by bringing someone in from the outside. The problem is it leaves us smaller institutions. Uh, they're not, those larger companies are not interested in talking to us. In New Hampshire, we actually tried to get all the museums together and see if we could get that uh, large, uh, larger Im uh, financial impact. Uh, but that didn't work as well either. And so we did find at Strawberry Bank that it's possible to get a local shop to run our shop um, and build a financial package there that both includes rent and a percent of the profit or the net on that. Oh, actually, it's the, we take a percentage of the gross uh, in that um, particular situation. It's proved to be very valuable. We're fortunate in that we sit in the middle of a city, unlike many outdoor history museums. So the shop sits on the edge, so it serves not only uh, our guests, but it serves uh, the general public uh, as well. Um, what that did also, because we were very careful about the things uh, we sold in the shop, as all of us are running our own shops, but this allowed the merchandise to be broadened significantly. So it both reflects what's uh, happening and it reinforces what's happening in the museum, but it also um, has a broader uh, appeal as well. Strategy, adapt the use of existing underutilized property and avoid uh, leasing external properties. Um, some of us go out and rent properties if we have sufficient uh, needs, go out and rent properties on the outside. I would advise you to take a good lo look at your own properties as we did and eliminate those uh, outside rentals and use your own properties. But uh, at Strawberry Bank, we took a look at our property as a building by building. And uh, we really figured out that uh, in one particular building, the copy machine had its own office. The envelopes had an office. Uh, everyone had an office. The library had three, build three uh, rooms. Um, and we never threw anything away. There's, uh, in, in our DNA as uh, history people, we have this hoarding DNA. I know it's in there someplace. And Strawberry Bank was kind of the poster child for that. And we had buildings filled with exhibits that were no longer used or, you know, a loom that we didn't have all the parts or spinning wheels that we have lots of. And so we took a look at those buildings and uh, emptied them out. And then we talked to staff about the fact, couldn't we work closer together? And in some cases, we work three and four in a room. Uh, the director does have his own office, but I basically can put my hands on all the walls. But um, we did open those spaces up, and now we have 32 office spaces. We have a large, we have 38 buildings, but we have uh, 32 office spaces and 12 apartments and two full houses that we rent that total out about half a million dollars in income that we didn't have before. We did bring somebody else from the outside, following our own advice here, to run the program for us. But it, it, uh, it nets out to over half a million dollars for us each year. <coughs> Redefine underperforming assets and convert to com uh, commercial uses. Um, so again, uh, we looked at our museum store underperforming and brought somebody in from the outside on that. I'm rushing because Ken's going to 
push me out of the way shortly here. Uh, fulfill preservation and mission, commi uh, com uh, mission commitments through other means than direct program use or ownership. Uh, this, all of us uh, care for a large number of buildings many times. Uh, we have buildings not only on our campus, but we had off-site uh, buildings as well. And we were a landlord off-site uh, and maintaining buildings that were really not part of our, um, our response mission or our responsibility. So uh, we took those buildings, put them on the market, and sold them uh, with easements. The easements actually fulfill our responsibility to that building. Now, we obviously maintain those easements and we review them on a regular basis, but we felt good about doing that because it really was the concern of the original owners to preserve those buildings, uh, particularly in the 1960s and 70s when much of Portsmouth was being torn down uh, with, with urban renewal seemed to have gone wild in the town. And so we felt we did uh, well by the people who don donated the buildings. And at the same time, uh, the buildings got attention that we never could have afforded them. So it was a, a good trade-off. And offer educational programs, obviously, that are entertaining, engaging, participatory, and relevant. Now, that's in here for a particular reason, and I'll tell you why. When you write an article, they always have two people that review it. And somebody reminded me I had paid no attention to the mission-driven part of what we do. So that's there because that's what you already do. I know you already do that. We do that as well. So we really work very hard on making our educational programs engaging and participatory and entertaining for new audiences and collaborate with other organizations on programming and share uh, our audiences. Collaboration particularly is important for us. That's, uh, before I get pushed out of the way here, uh, can I answer some questions? Would that be a good time or we do this at the end? Why don't we do this at the end? At the end, okay. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I wish you well in uh, your efforts to make uh, all of us more profitable. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Larry. Unlike everybody else, I don't have written notes. <laughs> and um, so my notes are the slides. Um, here's Larry's watch. Do you want your watch back? You could watch it. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm, first of all, thank you all for coming. Thank you for being here at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I almost feel like I need to offer you tea or caffeine or something to keep you awake. But I do talk a little bit fast, so sit up and pay attention or you're going to miss this. <laughs> and we'll keep you moving here through this. I, our hope is that we give you a little bit of information, give you some ideas, and then we have a discussion after we're all done talking with you. It just says October 2018. Which one is it? Right here. Oh, yeah. It's hiding over in the corner. What I want to do for you today is tell you that after all these years of being a consultant and doing a lot of landscape preservation work with a lot of museums around the country, I took a job with one of my clients called the Trustees of Reservations. And I know we do not handle the Native American spaces of Massachusetts, but we do cover and protect lands that have been reserved for public enjoyment. And the idea is that we protect places that are important because of their scenic as 
aspects, their cultural aspects or historic aspects in the 1891 terms, uh, their conservation or ecological aspects, and their scenery for the public enjoyment. So those four pieces are a very distinct part of our mission. And my team is responsible for what I call the people parts of the property. But when I came seven years ago, the idea of historic house museums was really headed down if it wasn't already at the bottom of where it was going to be. And the organization had been better known as a conservation organization rather than a preservation organization. And so we really tried to take a hard look at what we could do to reinvigorate and reinvest in our historic house museums and make them relevant and make them alive and actually make them generate some form of excitement and audience and membership, where what I really thought I was doing was going to a tiny little quiet corner of this organization to eventually retire, but that didn't <laughs> happen. So, um, so we looked a lot at um, this idea about what is significant about our historic sites. And then we looked at something that the English National Trust had been doing. And I should tell you that our organization started in 1891, and two years later, um, the folks from England borrowed our bylaws and created the National Trust in England. And we actually had a seat on their board up until the 1970s. So we are a parent and child, and the child has gone on and done much greater things than the parent ever did. So we decided that maybe what we needed to do was to go back and look at what our child had done and take the best out of what they had discovered and see if we could bring it back across the pond the other way and see if we could take a look at our sites in a brand new way. And of course, you all know that because we're all national landmarks or we're on the National Register, we all define the way that we look at our properties with a statement of significance. And it always talks about why this place is important for a person, for an event, or for a period of time. And it always looks backwards. And what I'm going to talk to you about today is what the English National Trust has called a spirit of place. And what this does is it tries to identify the emotional appeal and the personal response that each of our visitors has to our property. And it's, it's a, a theory that they've put together in trying to understand both the intellectual, which is represented by the statement of significance, and the emotive, which is represented by the spirit of place. And how can we get a handle on what that is? And how can we capture that and have it inform our programs and our, our engagement and interpretive programs, our tours, and the kinds of things that we do so we don't stray too far from what is significant and dear and cherished in English na uh, national landscape terms of our properties, but really be able to combine what is significant and what is emotionally appealing about our places together and be able to build our programming out of that. So that's really what we're going to talk about today and how this works. In essence, what it is is how do you take what you see and how do you combine that with what you feel about a place and create something that can really hit at the heart of why people love your place and why they want to come back and why they want to spend their money with you. Now, when I came seven years ago, our department was called the Historic Resources Department. So we changed its name to Cultural Resources to broaden out into the newer terms of what we're all doing in, uh, in the history world. But I also, because I didn't know these 112 properties at the moment, um, made a list of what resources did they have and how did they work and what was really special about them just in a pure historic inventory standpoint. 
And what was really interesting is that, I'm sorry this is an old slide, but it was critical because it was a changing point for what we were doing. What we really had out of the 111 properties we had was landscapes, and we had relict landscapes. So the Park Service here and UNESCO have different terms for how they categorize historic resources, but I like the UNESCO terms a lot better because they talk about landscapes either being re relict, so they've stopped a continuum at some point in their time, um, others are continuing, they keep changing and they keep moving forward and there's layers of history piled on top of each other. And there's ruins and there's archaeology and I was responsible for these different kinds of resources. But when you came right down to it, what we were worried about in the department was our collection and archives and our, our historic sites or our designed landscapes, a very tiny piece of what we really had. And what we really had was a much bigger definition and a much broader collection of resources that we needed to worry about. So could they possibly offer some of these ideas for what we could do? The biggest thing that we had was a lot of ruins, a lot of ruins, mill ruins, brickyard ruins, old grinding mills, grist mills. We had um, all kinds of derelict buildings that had gone and all we had were the building foundations and we had trails that went by them, but we never talked about those things that were there and what people passed. And yet they became part of the scenery and part of the beauty of the place that everybody loved when they walked some of our trails. And so we began to realize that our ruins are really valuable and we pay a lot of money to go to Europe and go tour ruins <laughs> and think they're incredibly beautiful and they're incredibly wonderful. So one of the simplest things we did was actually take down any protective barriers around some of our ruins where they were safe. And actually in this case, this is an old rose garden that was designed in 1909. This is up in Ipswich, Massachusetts. We took away the barrier that blocked the door, opened it up, fenced off areas that weren't safe for people to walk in, but we started to build a garden back into those spaces. And our intention is not to restore these columns and not to fix the moldering concrete that's there, but actually create a beautiful, evocative place that people can still experience. And in fact, the very first season that this was open, I was so gratified to just go see what the garden was looking like, and an older woman came up to me and she said, you're not gonna believe it, you're just not gonna believe it. I took a picture of that couple over there, they just got engaged. And so there they are, as a matter of fact, just having been engaged in this ruin. Not a pretty place, but a few flowers and a few plants make it change with the seasons, and it still remains actually one of the favorite places that people go to. This after we spent almost two million dollars restoring a casino and restoring an Italian garden and spending a lot of money on other beautiful garden spaces, but this is where people want to be. So think about your resources in the broadest sense and see what they can do. The, the role of the spirit of place, as I mentioned before, is this idea of what is the emotional special reaction that you have to whatever place that you, you are operating with and you're caring for, and how can you capture that and build that information into the programming that you're doing. So um, the National Trust procedure, we actually had consultants. They have a consultancy program at the National Trust that will bring consultants over and work with your staff on this process. We also sent our staff to the National Trust and went and visited some of these sites and talked with staff on their properties to see how they worked. But I actually found the consultancy when they came to us was extremely valuable because we could train and capture a lot of their information with a much larger group of our staff all at the same time. But there's a three-part part process. So the first thing is that you review and you update that statement of significance that we've all um, held for so long. 
The second is that you think about who's already coming to your property and you identify those groups and you try to capture them and ask them what it is that they love about the property. And it's a typical visitor survey, but it's saying to people, why did you come today? What's your favorite part of this property? What do you love about this place? Why is this important to you? And did you have a wonderful time today? But tell me what you think is the most distinctive part of this place and what is cherished, or what do you hold dear about your experience here today? Asking them for those emotional responses. And then finally, after gathering all of that visitor input, then you write your spirit of place. The hard thing for us has been to not just sit down and write a spirit of place. We think we know it the best and we know what people really love about our place, so we don't go out and ask those people. And if we do, we get very impatient about it, and we want them to tell us within a month or within a couple of weeks. The National Trust is very patient, and they take almost a year to be able to gather all that data. So we're continuing to do that. We've not perfected this process by any means. It is those three things that you're looking for. What is unique? What is distinctive? What is cherished about what is here that you really want to try to capture in the surveys that you're doing? And it has to come from your audience, not from internally. It's important that once you gather all of that information and the staff assesses it and you do a workshop with the staff about what your findings are, that you all come together to decide what that statement is. And it is an elevator speech. It is not an entire page of what you're doing. And it is not a description of the site. So many times when we've done this with our staff, they'll say, oh, the Bradley Estate is a beautiful, evocative country seat in Canton, Massachusetts. When the cherry trees bloom and the birds sing, you can go walking with your dog. That is not what we really need. What we need is for somebody to say, I have special memories of this place because I walk here with my child or my parent or my dog every day. And I can think and talk and, and converse with my family in a place that I find extremely beautiful that's deeply meaningful for me or this place is a place where I can go and be at peace and it's reflective and it's a personal place for me to escape and, and get away to. And then those are the pieces that help to frame the kind of programming you want to do there. Keeping it short is really important. I have a lot of staff that like to write a lot and they like to really go on and on about these things. Also, the spirit of place is not something that you advertise, but it is something that can inform your advertising. It's internal. And often, once you've written something that may be about 150 words, condense it all down to an elevator speech that's just one sentence long. And you can remind your interpreters and remind your retail people and remind your executive director, this is the spirit of place for this property. It's very short and it's very direct. So just really quickly, here is that Bradley estate that I was talking about, and it's gardeners. Um, and we did a workshop with the staff there in trying to really wrestle our arms around this process and see how we could make it work. And so being impatient Americans, we only spent a month gathering our visitor data. But even within that month, A, we found out how many members versus non-members were coming to us. And you don't have to pay a fee to come to walk this property. You can come and walk at any time. And I always wondered why that's the case, because why bother getting a membership if you're giving it all away for free? 
But look at what happened with what drew everybody. Walking the gardens, not going into the historic house, walking the gardens, walking my dog, taking pictures, seeing a beautiful place. It's near my house. And yet we were really focused on the historic house. We weren't focused on what was going on on the grounds. So really figuring out that most people were coming to take a walk on a beautiful property made a difference in how we were thinking about our programming. And rather than having all of our tour guides stay in the house behind that front door and hope somebody came knocking or you kept it open and hope they came up and said hello to you, move them out into the landscape and have them really be out there to really be able to do a tour or walk or talk or welcome everybody and talk with them a little bit while they're on the grounds made a difference. So here's a statement of significance. These are just little bullets about that because I didn't want you to read a very long statement of significance. Um, but so this is a place that's a country seat. It has a beginning and an ending date. It had a horticultural legacy from Eleanor Cabot Bradley. And it, was, it happened to be designed by Charles Platt, a very important early 20th century um, landscape architect slash um, architect. And yet here's what the themes are for the spirit of place that are coming to light peaceful, a quiet place to walk, manicured gardens, it feels like my home, it's conveniently located near the highway. This doesn't mean that we didn't do a big beer garden here this year to get everybody to come in in an afternoon, but the fact that people want it to feel like home means that we can't put in a major arboretum and giant displays of perennials everywhere because they want this contemplative space as part of their experience and that has to inform how we think about planning and laying out where we're headed with this property. The other thing that we did was we really began to understand that our historic houses, it wasn't that our historic houses sat in a garden, but it was that we owned a garden that happened to have a historic house museum in it. And that change in looking at the big picture of the landscape and then the resources that are within it also made a big difference in how we looked at our historic properties. And so it made us go to the American Public Gardens Association to see what they knew about their visitors and what they knew about their audiences. And it turned out in 2016, Dr. Benfield at Central Connecticut University wrote a book called The Garden Tourist, where he'd already spent five years analyzing audiences, trying to figure out who's coming, how many were coming, who made the decisions about who comes to see a public garden. That's all great audience data and research that we could really use if we were gonna think about really activating our landscapes as well as our historic house museums together. But when he did his survey, 73% of the people that go to a botanical garden, an arboretum, or any kind of a public garden go because it's a beautiful place. That's really the reason that they love to go. It's a beautiful place for me to go walk. 12% of them go because they want to learn about plants or they want to learn about um, classes that are being offered there. But he makes the point that those 12% are the biggest donors and the 73% create the biggest audience. And I think there's a lot of parallels to be drawn between what the findings are for the public gardens and findings for historic house museums because there's a lot of people that come because we have beautiful interiors or beautiful places where they can come inside and out to be able to walk. 
And finally, what that did for Bradley was it really did make us classify Bradley as a public garden that has a wonderful historic house. It is not a historic house museum because we don't have a lot of furnishings there. It actually had been used as one of our office spaces for a long time. But so we're using it for programming internally and externally. We're putting all of our effort and all of our focus. And in fact, a lot of money is coming in to have us really activate the garden spaces and the beauty of the grounds and turn those into even more beautiful places but still keep the contemplative aspect of it and the opportunity for both active programming and that passive programming that everybody liked. This happens to be a partnership that we did with the Proven Winners people to activate the formal garden and work with them on both plant education but also creating what we called the wow garden um, in the first season that turned uh, was transformative for this place as well. Quickly, this is Nomkeg. This is another big Gilded Age estate out in the Berkshires, um, out in the western part of Massachusetts. Very important property because not only did it have a great McKim Mead and White house, and it was very late 19th century important, but then between 1926 and 1956, Fletcher Steele came in and created a mid-century modern um, garden with the daughter, Mabel Choate, and together they created a horticultural and design masterpiece here. So again, statement of significance. It's a McKim Mead and White House. It's a Fletcher Steel Garden. It has these important people and these important dates that are associated with it. But when we looked at the spirit of place, it's a love of family, a place for family fun. Um, the story with this house that I love the best is that the mother, Caroline Choate, was an artist. And she actually had a wedding ring cast that was engraved with married to art that she wore until she met her husband, Joseph Choate, who convinced her that he was probably a better choice than just being married to art for the rest of your life. So they had four children, and but this passion for art in all of its forms, she gave as a gift to all of her children, and that is what pervades Namkeg now. It pervades the garden and the garden design, the beauty of the plantings, it pervades the interiors and the collections. So it's a strive for art and travel and, um, and, and beauty in all all forms when we're here. And so you can see by playing with these ideas, both the intellectual and the emotive, how they can really be combined. But you need some of that data and you need some of that information from your audiences in order to be able to drive this rethinking of what that tour might be like or what the, the site experience is gonna be all about and how it can help to inform your audience based on what they're doing and where they're coming. And it's not something that's static. So if you do make some changes and you get more audiences coming, then in five years, if we go through the Spirit of Place workshop again, our audience may tell us something more or they may tell us something different and then we need to work with that and massage some of the programming that we're doing but it's been highly effective by turning these properties Namkeg tripled its visitation in two years now we invested some money in the gardens at the same time which helped make it an even more beautiful place but it really did have a significant impact and that visitation and those paid tickets at Namkeg you do pay to go on the grounds turned that into a financial gain for us and it showed our donors that we really could invest properly and get a lot of financial results back from some of that investment. So it's been both financially lucrative, emotionally lucrative, and professionally lucrative for us to be able to work with all of this. But as I say, we haven't perfected it yet. It's still a work in progress and we're still figuring that out. Thank you. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you, Larry.
I don't have slides. I'm going to pass out paper. <laughs> so I don't, not sure there's enough. So um, if you don't get one, I'll just stick them here. Excuse me. Oops. I brought uh, Stowe Center's rack card, which is going this side, and the Stowe Center's more recent program brochure, which is on this side. Uh, if you don't get either one, look at the Stowe Center's website, harrietbeecherstowe.org. But before I charge into details about the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center, I want to make a couple of observations about what Larry and Cindy just told us. Um, I think a key point that comes out of this that's relevant to what I want to say about audience, uh, besides the obvious one that audience permeates everything that they have said, um, is that you at each of your sites need to find the core elements, the unique niche, the pieces of what you have that aren't common, the, the pieces that you can share, that you can synthesize into the mission and programmatic content and the donor appeals and the communications. It's all about finding your niche. So you heard about how Trustees of Reservations has been going about it, and you heard Larry's analysis about the financial pieces for Strawberry Bank. Um, uh, and I think that's really important as we rethink our historic sites to make them useful, relevant, and meaningful for people today, because the world has changed. And as Larry also pointed out, we tend to be traditional, fixed in our ways. He didn't say it quite like this. Somewhat static in what we do. Uh, so we're always having to push, 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 whether it's ourselves as individuals or our boards or even our communities to uh, make things a little different. Because difference drives interest, drives traffic, drives donation, drives engagement. And there's a kind of two-way street with all of this. So let's see. So my, I'm in the chapter about audience. Um, and I think that's because of what the work we've done at the Stowe Center. But just a few thoughts about that. I think the basic question I'm asking in my chapter, I was asked to ask, is why are audiences important to historic house museums? Well, that's kind of a dumb question, don't you think? <laughs> so let's have some answers. Why are audiences important? Say that louder. No reason to have all that stuff stacked away if nobody's enjoying it. No reason. No reason to have all that stuff if you don't have people coming in. George. Yep. Yes. Sustainability. If you don't have people coming in, you don't have money to restore and uh, do your job. Sir, in the back. why you exist. It's what we are. Yes? People let you know if your site is relevant, right? And they do let you know when it is. They also let you know when it isn't. With their feet, if nothing else. And their memberships and their traffic. Great. Um, so, yes, I've written down sustainability. Uh, that it's our job. It's our legal requirement. It's our ethical job. It's what we love, and it's why we do it, right? Um, it's also nice to get attention. So we like it when people come. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we're doing our job. And let's recognize that, because we want to feel good in our work. Um, 
And I also argue that having people populating these sites, whether it's landscapes or historic houses, humanizes the space, especially the domestic environment, the houses. This is, these are created by people. These are lived in by people, whatever the size of these places, log cabins on the prairie or Saudis out in Can the western Kansas or the magnificent, ma magnific magnificent, there's the word, mm -hmm. magnificent mansions uh, of the wealthy um, and everything in between. Um, it's the humanity of having people in the spaces that brings the emotion and the feeling that allows us to do what Cindy was describing. Because it is an emotional connection and you want in your delivered experiences to be evoking emotion and not just irritation and boredom. We want to get beyond that. So if you think about it in some of these ways, um, I think we can, uh, with our audiences and the input of our audiences by listening to them, motivate change in our organizations and in ourselves. And that change drives revenue, sustainability, success, collections, visibility. And of course, then, if the audience is telling us what they like and don't like, and we are listening and we are adapting, the audience is paying attention. And it goes back the other way, too. We get the emotional feedback. We get the content feedback, et cetera. Is all making sense? OK. It is 4 o'clock on whatever day this is, Thursday? <laughs> Um, so change is important. You know, why are we talking about reinvigorating or revitalizing or whatever the title, the new title of the book is, uh, uh, Historic Houses Today. Uh, change is important. Um, it's a process. There's lots of literature on change processes. I recommend it to you uh, if you think about it thoughtfully. But that's what we're trying to do to get beyond our stasis in, and inaction, which I think equates with failure. So listening to the public, asking them. Cindy talked about visitor surveys. At the Stowe Center, we weren't even that formal. We had conversations with various niches of our audience, including people who don't come to the museum. And we said, what do you want to do in a historic house? What do you want to do in Stowe's house? And they gave us a lot of feedback about that, very thoughtful feedback. They want to be asked. They love it. Um, and we were able to use some of that in our reinterpretive plan and the house tour experience. Um, and I think all of this is important, and I'm going to get into a few details about what the Stowe Center did, um, but big picture stuff, you know, we aren't doing enough of this. We've been talking about changing historic houses, I don't know, as long as we can all remember. When I joined the Stowe Center 20 years ago, coming from a big organization to the Stowe Center, which is a medium-sized museum. At the time, it was under a million dollars. Now it's about a million and a half dollar budget. Um, those of you who are much smaller museums, I'm trying to talk in a way that you can scale what you have and you can do to uh, uh, fit with these observations. Um, at the time, I called a bunch of colleagues around the country and said, what historic house museums are doing interesting stuff? And there weren't that many examples. Now, there are more examples now, many more, but we need to roll change through all of them. Historic houses are among the most popular sites that p communities create. That's why there's so many of them. The community loves these places, so they save these buildings. They're responsible for them. 
Um, they have a vested interest in them, um, so let's call that out. But just think about that. How, they, how did your site get created? Somebody got to be in their bonnet, right? Where's that energy? Can we recreate that energy? Uh, and we've also trained our visitors, I would argue, very, with, very well to expect a particular kind of model uh, when they visit a historic house. You show up, maybe you buy a ticket, or you have some kind of initial engagement, and you're taken on a tour, or maybe you get some kind of audio tour, but it's largely passive. You're the audience, you're being lectured to. There's not much invitation for question or engagement. There's not much provocation. There's not much necessarily connection with the current world. How is the past in the present? Um, we need to overcome all of these. We can't be passive any longer. We also organize our sites for our um, own convenience, not for the visiting public's convenience. So what, we're open nine to five? When do people work? Nine to five. Now we see art museums particularly going into the evenings or special events at our sites go into the evenings, but think about what the public wants. They don't wanna show up nine to five unless they're a school group or it's a weekend. Or maybe it's summer and they're on holiday. Um, what, should our, what should your visitation hours be? Your site's visitation hours be? Let's see, time. Well, if I forgot to push my timer button, I don't know how much time I have left. How much time do I have left? Great, five minutes? Great. Um, I also have sort of be in my bonnet about the names we give these sites, our historic sites. So there's one uh, um, in Wethersfield, Connecticut called the Webb Dean Stevens Museum. What does that mean? Anybody here from Webb Dean Stevens? No. <laughs> I've said this to them. What does that mean? How does the visitor know at all of our many, many sites, even the ones looking for great places, or something to do that day, how do they know what kind of experience they're gonna get? So it should be, you know, great revolutionary generals houses, colon, the Webb Dean Stevens Museum or something like that. And then of course, we always leave out the women. It's the Ebenezer Smith house. It's not the Ebenezer Smith and Jane. I got that all wrong, right? Ebenezer and Jane Smith's house. Uh, it's time to fix that. Um, and we use jargon, we use lots of jargon. So when we're talking to our public, we're talking about things they don't know what, they don't know what collections are, they think it's the bank calling because the loan's overdue. They don't know what deaccessioning is, they don't know what accessioning is, blah, blah, blah. Think about changing the language. So what we did at the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center, um, which of course is a historic site, we've got three buildings, one of which is author Harriet Beecher Stowe's last home, uh, where she lived for almost 25 years at the end of her career. Uh, and um, so she was internationally known, author of 30 novels, best known for Uncle Tom's Cabin, a book that changed American attitudes in the 1850s, but has a mixed reputation, because if you've read it, you understand why it's got a mixed reputation. Um, so, but Stowe's world, world famous, internationally known, People come from all over the world to visit this site, and they know more about her than we do. I did a talk to the Danish 
Museums Association a few years ago, and I asked the audience, how many of you have read Uncle Tom's Cabin? And they all raised their hands. I'm not going to ask you, because <laughs> I know. Um, so we, that, is, that was our negative and our positive in a, in a big picture, because we all have negatives. So you've got to turn those negatives around somehow and make, you have to address the negatives, not ignore them, not pretend they're there. Um, so we've done, over a multitude of years, reinterpretation projects, the most recent, the historic house, uh, revising the tour. Um, Ken mentioned the salons at Stowe, community-based conversations around contemporary issues that tie to what Stowe was writing about. Um, so racism and equity stuff, um, bullying. Um, sometimes we even talk about landscape and how people might use outdoor spaces, environmental justice. Uh, and those audiences who come to the programs, because we've built trust in our community, because of the content and how we listen, are diverse in all the ways that you can be diverse. And Hartford, Connecticut is a hundred, is, Connecticut has some of the more poorest cities in the country, and we're one of the richest per capita states in the country. So that's the kind of equity gap we're talking about right in our neighborhood in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, um, so we wanted to take that facilitated conversation approach into all of our other programs, including the house tour. And the house tour was the last thing we did and the hardest thing to do because we all know how hard it is to, I call it, blow up the house tour. It's very hard to do because people get set in their ways and that includes the staff. So we asked the public what they wanted to do. Wanted to do. We incorporated those responses uh, into the new tour experience. We decided that not every room had to be a period room, as it had always been, um, that some of them could be more gallery spaces. We decided we were going to sit them down with some artifacts halfway through the tour and have a conversation based on some uh, documents, documents about uh, human beings in bondage in the mid-19th century. And what happens is we talk about that, but pretty quickly we're talking about what's on the front pages today. Um, so we're surprising people on this tour. And you can see us trying to address that in the rack card is how we're talking about what people say about it. Because people aren't used to being asked questions. Um, so staff has to negotiate that. We also have to train staff in a completely different way than we used to. And we recruit them differently because they have to be skilled at facilitation of difficult conversations. We do this routinely in our other uh, programs but we weren't doing it so much in the house tours. So the staff has changed considerably, so the way that we work with the house tour staff is very different. Um, it's been, I'm trying to think there are particular other points, but I'm happy to answer any questions. It's changed me, it's changed the organization, it's changed the Stowe Center's profile completely, and it's built engagement in our community, it's built cross-cultural conversations and dialogues, and now we are a resource, the Stowe Center is a resource for our local community and the larger community as a whole. It's been very exciting, so thank you for the chance to talk about it. Okay, I want to really thank Catherine, Cindy, and Larry for giving us some new approaches to Historic House. Um, much more to think about, uh, but we will have some time for questions, so if you have a question, 
We're actually recording this, so I need to repeat it. Yes. I'm not going to try to repeat that for the recording. <laughs> that was great. Uh, other comments or questions? George? So it's a question about is changing, uh, changing with the board and leadership. Yeah, Any strategies, ideas? Well, the Stowe Center, we recruited to the mission. And that was how we recruited board members. And I had had start on that when I came 20 years ago because the board had already done some hard work about what they wanted to be. So in uh, the Stowe Center, the summary mission is 
to use Stowe's story to inspire social justice and positive change. So they weren't using those words yet quite that clearly, but they had the ideas. So the, that struck, you know, the framework was already there. I didn't have to battle that battle in the same way. But uh, plus, at the Stowe Center, we always have felt that um, the board isn't, there are many ways to participate in board giving and that not all of it is dollars and that we will have a more successful organization and board members and, 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 and org organization and board if we think about recruitment of board members in that way. Um, now that goes against all the current, most people's actions and, and um, many organizations, they recruit for dollars before anything else. But for us, it's been a core piece of making the organization, the new organization is recruiting first to mission and next to everything else. George, I think that the board is, there's not a consistent board, meaning the board has to reflect where the institution is in its life cycle. So if an organization is mature, it certainly demands a different kind of board. At Strawberry Bank, when I arrived uh, more than a dozen years ago, we really had, yeah, we had very significant financial issues, and the institution needed to grasp, grasp that concept and grapple with those issues. And so the board, over a very short amount of time, began to reflect the board that the institution needed, which means we had more business people than we had in the past, more entrepreneurs, uh, people who are really interested in change. Now that board has begun to change because now we're paying much more attention to, to our institutional mission and what the institution is doing now that the finances are, are in better control along the way. I can tell you for the trustees, we have a very complicated system for building our board because you're first identified as what they call a corporate trustee, so a very large group of 125 or 150 people um, are nominated to come into this group basically to introduce you to the organization the many aspects of the organization and what we do. And some of those individuals step forward and they serve on some of our board committees so they get to know the organization a little bit better. The next step is that you get nominated to go on to an advisory board, which is a much smaller group of people, much more actively involved and much more intimately involved in what the organization is all about. And again, like the, everybody else has said, they almost self-sort a little bit. But because we broadened out to do public gardens and culture and ecology, then we all of a sudden built a larger corporate body that had those interests and then we built an advisory body that had more of those interests and then finally when you're asked to go up and be on the board uh, those are termed positions but you've got this broader base and by the time you get to the board level you know what the organization is all about and you know some of the struggles but also the, ch the challenges and the opportunities the organization has and so it builds out a, a more knowledgeable board that already has been trained before they actually show up in the seat at the table which has really helped us tremendously different approaches yep. other questions yeah uh, before the uh, another question uh, don't forget to fill out your evaluations and Larry does have a handout right on business plans, good checklist there. Uh, question.
Uh, I can, well, thank you. This isn't even a plant. I can, I can absolutely tell you that. So the book should be out in early uh, 2019. And the title is, I can't show you because we've closed it down, but I can tell you, Reimagining Historic House Museums, New Approaches and Proven Solutions. And that's an ASLH um, and Ro Roman and Littlefield publication. So do, do watch for that. Thank you <laughs> for asking. Anyone else? Ah, one last question. Go ahead. the reaction. So she's asking if we had a strong reaction as we looked at Bradley and transformed it into something that was more focused on the garden rather than the house. Um, the benefit that I've always loved about the Bradley house is that it is a beautiful piece of architecture. And we did not have the need for doing a lot of object conservation there because we didn't have the furnishings. When the house came to us, the furnishings were dispersed and we used it as an office. So we have some nice pieces in the house, but it had been used primarily as a function place. So it was a wedding venue more, more than anything. Um, but this has allowed us to think about what role that house can play to serve a public garden audience. And that means that we can use it for smaller classes, or we can use it for teas, or we can use it for flower arranging classes, or we can use it for weddings and events and beautiful, beautiful events happening inside a beautiful building within a beautiful garden. And honestly, we did not have a lot of negative reaction um, there it, because the house itself speaks so well for itself. And because we were still focused on energizing the property, that really did help us tremendously. Um, I can tell you that what it did do is that it put it on the map, and so there's a new Little Women movie that Hollywood is producing, and so this next month, we're managing film crews running all over the place because they want to use the house because it's bigger spaces and they can create the intimacy of small rooms with film crews, and they can't fit into the farmhouse that we have at Fruitlands, you know, where Louisa May Alcott played with her sisters. So there's benefits to being able to open it up, and it also allows us to talk about this relationship between the building and grounds in a very sometimes intellectual way but also just a pure beauty way that connects those two together and I actually really like the fact that it's very freeing. Nomkeg has a ton of collections, it's beautiful, the collections are really important but it's so claustrophobic that you can't you know even move things aside. We can have a dinner at the dining room table but we're having to have a much more delicate dance when it comes to what we want to do inside that house because of the quantity and the importance of the collections there but it's all good and it's all its own way. So I'll mention one other quick model, and that is just down the street, basically, yes. uh, from the Bradford Estate. Historic New England, a uh, year ago, opened the Eustace Estate. Uh, amazing uh, Queen Anne 1878 house, always in the same family. But it only came with um, two rooms, complete rooms of furnishings, and one hall furnishing. So the decision made was made that we would uh, buy reproductions or period pieces to use in the house for people to sit on and explore the house on their own. So they can go into the library, pull books off the shelf. There are iPads in each of the room. 
Um, and it's self-exploration. Guided tours are offered twice a day, and we sit on 80 acres of land that abut the Blue Hills. And it's, a, it's more of a, it's not a garden landscape, and, but we are encouraging people to go out. So that's another different kind of model. And it's really in the same community there, but very different. So with that said, uh, we're going to end the session on time. Thank you all for coming. Appreciate it. Uh, hand out by Larry up here if anyone would like.